Welcome to This Must Be The Place. I'm Eric Parkinson in Seattle, Washington. This is a show that strives to reveal the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or barely noticed nooks and crannies, we are going to bring you weekly stories, features, and interviews like today, all striving to let you feel the texture of these places. I have with me Rodrigo de Medeiros. Rodrigo is a filmmaker, photographer, director, and producer based in Seattle, Washington. His work centers around editorial features, fashion, documentaries, and travel. You can take a look at his work at rodrigod.com. He and I were colleagues for a while at a local uh, digital advertising agency, and I've asked him to join me for a conversation because he recently did something which I consider inspirational and brave. He and his family recently kicked away from the 9 to 5 and undertook a year-long trek that took them to 13 countries in, I think, 11 months or so. He will be talking about that. I'm hoping that he will not only chat about the places he visited, but really dig deep into what motivated him to push away from a conventional life, to break free from the daily grind, and make that leap of faith to take a year off and travel. Rodrigo, thank you so much for, for joining me this morning. Thank you. This is, this is excellent. Yeah. It's great to share the experience. That's great. And, and now what I want you to do is just tell us a bit about your path in life. How did you get here? How did, did you get to where you are now? And that gives you an opportunity to tell us a little bit, not only about, about the year off, but a little bit about yourself as well. Right. So uh, I've been here in Seattle for 23 years this October, uh, which is half my life exactly. I met my wife in 1992. This is why I'm going to start here, because she's the one who brought me here to Seattle in the first place. We met through some common friends we had. She was an exchange student when she was 16 years old. Um, and we hit it off because she's super smart. And of course, I wouldn't have done this trip either if it wasn't for her, because she's an avid traveler like me. We hope that our kids are going to be avid travelers as well after this experience. But anyway, so I came here because I was just finishing college. She was about wrapped up with college. And um, I just wanted an opportunity to extend my studies, essentially. I have a BA in communications through the University of Brasilia in Brazil. And so uh, she mentioned the Art Institute of Seattle. So I came. I came here and we moved in together. And just a little bit after I graduated, we got married. <laughs> and the rest is history. I kind of just stayed here. My path has always been, uh, like I said, I was always very interested in the visual arts. Um, during college, I had the opportunity to do a lot of radio and advertising, like print advertising. Um, I also did a little bit of filmmaking. The only thing I didn't want to do was journalism. I still don't trust journalists very much, so um, it still holds true. <laughs> I found that the Institute of Seattle gave me a very solid extension to what I already knew. And so it was not very hard for me, I, I confess, to, to get a really good job after I graduated. Always in the field of communication. So I started uh, here in the U.S. Uh, working for Corbis Images. Then I did a bunch of freelancing. And my path led me to uh, the agency where you and I worked together at. I always did a little bit of photography. I always did a little bit of video. Always being in the same realm, essentially. Um, a few years ago... I started shooting for this magazine, local magazine, Four to Five. Um, and that actually was um, one of the things that started having me be a little bit more, think a little bit more outside of, you know, just being in an agency doing things every day, nine to five. Because there was, uh, the assignments gave me, I guess, a little bit more of a perspective of meeting new people and 
going to places. And that's where I think I started thinking, huh, I could possibly do this <laughs> uh, on an ongoing basis, I guess. I think um, what's interesting is you spoke about the kernel of an idea that led you to think that you could break away from the 9 to 5 live and the right. assignments that 45 Magazine gave you, which I assume are are you know moving from place to place in the Pacific Northwest. I think 45 Magazine is based in, in Seattle and Bellevue area and is really a, a magazine about what lifestyle in this area, whether it's fashion, restaurants, bars, it's that kind of magazine. I'm curious about how the kernel of an idea that, hey, maybe we should just drop everything for a year and have a tremendous risk associated with that. How did that emerge and how did that amplify through the family? What's the process of, of that kernel of an idea becoming reality? Great question. <laughs> Both my wife and I, one of the common things we had is we always loved traveling. Even when we were broke and just married, we still found time to go places like we went to Victoria, Vancouver. I mean, I just, we just really liked to have that time off just to kind of feel like we're not just working nine to five, <laughs> which I feel unfortunately that's what Americans mostly do. I heard that Americans actually have an average of two weeks of vacation and a lot of them actually don't even use that. Mm -hmm which I feel affects your mindset and affects your productivity in the long run. I think because we always had this bug of we must break away and not think about it for a while. So usually I would, you know, pile up as much vacation as I could and go spend three to four weeks with my folks. Uh, they live in a coastal town in Brazil. And uh, when my kids were toddlers, we took extended trips. I think uh, back to your question specifically about how do you think that forms in your head or you know what, what sparks that you know, feel. I think we always had the bug, but I feel like every time we went and it was so great, two things came to mind always. Two or three weeks is just not enough. Like slow traveling started forming in my head as being like the way to do it instead of just buying a package you know, or going on a cruise, which is a complete different type of travel. Uh, we, we felt also started feeling that, oh my, life here is kind of brutal. You know, you essentially follow this pattern. Everybody kind of follows this pattern, it seems, that you, you know, oh, you got out of college, and then you find somebody, and then you marry that person, and then you might or might not have a family of, you know, children. And then you live for them, and then you educate them and raise them, and then they get out of their house, and they start their own cycle, right? So we're like, oh, come on, there has to be something better around that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was always somebody that did not like patterns or uh, conventions. I always liked to break away from those patterns as much as possible because I feel like once you feel like you don't have anything else to learn or that you are uh, stuck somewhere, then you definitely have to find a way to shake it off or you're going to continue to be stuck and it's going to, you know, you're going to get into another pattern. So we felt like traveling was a way to reset, reboot, and uh, break away from a pattern. Even though you might come back to that same sort of uh, routine, um, you start noticing that there are certain things that you start doing differently you know, after you have an experience like that. Yeah, and, and I definitely understand you talked about a, a two-week period associated with travel and how that is not enough. Everybody's wired differently, but I can describe in my case, there's a certain 
X number of days at the beginning of the trip where you are basically reconfiguring your brain to start releasing the concerns and the stressors of the nine to five existence before. There might be days in between where you're finally feeling you're getting into the groove and into a, an understanding of the places you're in with occasional spikes uh, reminding you, twisting the knife in you, perhaps thinking of of where you came from. And then the last few days of the vacation where that impending doom starts setting in. <laughs> <laughs> impending doom. That's yeah. a great way to put it. Right. And and so the bookends of, if you're anything like me, the bookends of those two weeks are basically in some ways devalued. It's, it's almost like you're not as present as you could be in the locations you are. Now, that might be because we're a couple of neurotics and other people are great at uh, compartmentalizing that out. But I see what, what you mean. And I think what I'm curious about, because a lot of people who might be listening to this might say, well, that's great. You, you can drop everything and, and do this yourself. What about moments of fear that you have or trepidation where maybe you and, and your wife and your family all agreed, yes, we're definitely doing this, but I'm sure there were five or six or seven major moments where you said, well, this is risky. What if we come back and we don't have the same level of life that we had because we dropped everything? Did you have those moments? What were they like? How did you address them? So forming the idea was after we took a very extended trip, uh, completely removed from our reality, you know, no reference whatsoever. In 2011, we took an extended trip about six weeks to a region in Brazil that I had never been to as well, um, called the Pantanal. And it's like the marshlands of Brazil, I guess. It's a beautiful, beautiful natural reserve. It's actually protected by the government. Um, they have jaguars, anacondas, and alligators. I mean, it's just it's a it's spectacular sanctuary for fauna and flora in Brazil. I would say that that trip, I think, was the foundation for our bigger idea of, wow, we could do this longer. And we did not kill each other. Mm -hmm. It was uh, very comfortable. I was like, okay, although this is a place that's completely unfamiliar and has anacondas, for God's sake. I mean, I was still fine with that. We, we fished for piranhas. We had moments where you would think, holy crap, this is so irresponsible. We shouldn't be doing this. We were on a bank of a river fishing for piranhas, and my son caught a couple of them. What was the bait? Well, the bait was actual meat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then once we were out of meat, the guide, she said, oh, we can just chop up one of them and use that as bait because they're cannibals. I'm like, that's great. So anyway, we had moments like that. But that's when we thought, wow, we need to seek out some of these experiences. Um, and because the kids were so comfortable with such an, you know, something unfamiliar, we felt they could handle it. And thus, we started thinking, what if we did a big loop around the world? What if we just took off? I mean, this is 2011, so maybe we do this, you know, we think three or four years, we could probably save money and start making plans and starting, you know, figuring out what we have to do to make that happen. And so my wife is a fantastic planner. She's a fantastic PM. Um, and we started, you know, that, that idea started taking shape where we actually bought a world map and started marking, oh, here's all the places that we've been to. And these are all the places we would like to, you know, visit and spend time there. At that time, we did not have a plan of how long we would stay. Crossed our minds that maybe we should just go. 
we started looking at stuff on the internet. There's a lot of really cool blogs and stories of people who have been doing this as their lifestyle, you know. Not just backpacking because, you know, there's a lot of more infrastructure nowadays without the communication. Um, and we felt, okay, we don't want to just be so, you know, radical as doing something like that. But we can do something in between, you know. We don't have to do resorts, cruises, and all that stuff that people commonly do. Um, we wanted to really shake up our comfort zone and go to places um, where we could experience the local life. It sounds kind of cliche, but the, the reality of it is the more you confront your fears and the more you put yourself in a situation where you kind of have to figure it out, your, your body's kind of set up and your mind's kind of set up to sort of like take it. You can take change better. You learn how to make that part of the experience. So you're not afraid. Yes, there were moments when we were apprehensive. <laughs> I, uh, I developed this horrendous fear of flying. And so um, what you have to do is try to find ways to minimize that. So, you know, we got a prescription for anxiety meds and, you know, I started drinking scotch before <laughs> boarding the plane and that really helped. On days that we were have to fly, for instance, the family knew, oh my gosh, Rodrigo is completely useless. So we're going to have to take care of everything. We would pre-pack at night, make sure everything was taken care of for boarding passes, printed out and all that jazz. And yeah, I would just kind of pass out on the plane, the flight. So, but my criteria is it has to be a major airline and it needs to be at least a 737. So all I'm trying to say is you got to find ways to make your fear, not make you paralyzed. Like, oh, I'm not going to Rio or Brazil because I might be mugged in the street. Well, yeah, you could be walking down the street and be hit by a truck, God knows. So yes, we did have certain uh, moments of fear, but it was never a situation that made us paralyzed. I think the the urge and the, I would say the drive to have an experience was always bigger. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't recommend it more. I feel like people, the idea of planning something as big as this is, you know, dreadful, I suppose, to some. But... It is really not that hard if you put your mind to it. Um, we knew how much money we had to spend. And all it takes is really just a little bit more planning. Yeah. And I think uh, what a lot of people fear is do they have stability when they return from such a long commitment? And everybody has different thresholds. But I think a lot of what you talked about has to do with almost like a training wheels experience. Take a significant trip that puts you out of your comfort zone and and see how you feel about it, how you process that, see if you ultimately can develop that courage and that perspective. And you also mentioned um, some blogs that, that you used and that you you read probably before, during, and after. If, if you want to talk a little bit about those, and I'll also add them to the show notes of this episode for those who are interested. Sure. Um, my wife did most of the research there, but we found a couple of blogs, uh, websites, and stories of people Sometimes they're just couples or they're families. Uh, and some of them are from all over the world. So different perspective, right? They weren't just Americans. Um, my favorite one was Booker Travels. And Booker is a guy who is now 18 years old, just went to college. But at the time when his mother and dad um, and, and father started traveling, I think he was six years old. So he, they've been doing this for 12 years. And what, what happens was they would plan trips every year and go extensively to live like a local in 
those places. They went all over the world. Their first trip was actually to the Amazon, I, I believe, with Booker when he was a child. And so she was a filmmaker. She's a filmmaker, Tanya, and she's an amazing human being. I had a chance to meet her finally after my trip, which was kind of weird. We got in touch with her beforehand, and she was super open. We, we asked about places, and we... Um, we, you know, we just exchanged ideas about how it felt like to travel with a child, because that was one of the main things for us, is how does it feel to travel with a teen or a preteen, you know, because the needs are different. They're not just like back and go. You, you have to make it kind of interesting for them as well, right? So we had a lot of uh, exchange with her. She was super open to talking about it. And her web series is amazing. I mean, her videos are absolutely awesome. And it sparked this idea in me that I should definitely document this process. So I did. Our, our website was launched in September of 2014 when we left the U.S. Uh, and it's called learnlivetravel.com. I have tried very hard to update it frequently, but, you know, of course, life gets in the way once in a while. But I did manage to upload up to, we have about 18 episodes, I believe. I'm still in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Video. <laughs> of video, yes. Mm-hmm. There are short little episodes that chronicle our passage through these specific places. It's not just what you should do, uh, but it's also about the mindset. Like, what were we feeling when we did this? And it's um, all of us are part of it. It's not just my perspective. I do interview each one of us about each place where we go. And then with all the uh, footage that we shoot, then I make the episode. It's interesting. I think it's interesting, too. I got somebody mentioned once to me that they thought it was really cool that the videos were from five different perspectives, you know. I didn't mention this, but aside from our four nuclear family, we had a really good friend of ours, Heather, who at the time was a teacher. She still is a teacher at the Snoqualmie Valley District. And was one of the ways we found to have the kids not miss a year of school. She traveled with us this whole time, and she was a trooper. Amazing. I can't believe she's still friends with the family after all this time. (laughs) But she was the perfect fit for us, and she was able to not only offer her separate perspectives, being just an American without any contact with, let's say, Brazil or um, um, Latin America, like my, my kids and my wife, and added that extra voice, I think, to the episodes that make it all the more interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit now, let's, let's talk about the actual trip. Uh, we talked about a lot about planning and, and how everybody felt about taking such a huge leap and, and those moments of trepidation. But give us an outline. It's, I believe, 13 countries, 11 months. Tell us a little bit about what that loop was like. What's your itinerary so people can, can situate themselves and, and see exactly what the scope of this trip was. So with the idea that we wanted to stay at least a couple of weeks on each place, we decided, okay, we need to do a loop. So let's do South America, South Africa, and Europe. We wish we would have gone more into Asia, but it would have broken the loop a little bit. And we didn't want to go as far as Australia this first time around. We did 13 countries, yes. We started, the route was exactly this. We went to Peru, Chile, Argentina, then Brazil, where we stayed three months because my family's there. Then we flew to South Africa and we spent, I think, about a month there. Then we made, um, took a long flight to Greece. And then we went to um, Turkey, Czech Republic. Um, Then we did, I'm trying to remember here exactly the route. I think we went to Spain. My daughter then went, um, she went to do a uh, French 
immersion camp in Montpellier in France. We went then to we went to Ireland and Scotland, which was one of the biggest surprises to me how much I absolutely loved it. Then we went to Copenhagen, Denmark, and then Amsterdam I believe was our last stop. And that was when I was so depressed. I can barely mm-hmm. remember what I did there. I didn't want to come back. <laughs> so yeah. And I think what I'm curious about is you, you refer to it as slow travel, but I think some people might wonder 13 countries, 11 months. I guess people's conceptions of slow travel is, is different. Clearly, you know, going on a cruise and hitting 11 cities and 10 nights is not slow travel. Uh, package, you know, four nights, five days, two cities, you know, just going on an organized bus tour, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and looking at sites is not slow travel. On the other side of the spectrum, I would argue there are those folks that consider slow travel to be, I will go to a specific region, let's say the Basque country in Spain or France, and stay there for six months to a year and explore the region. So there's an interesting spectrum of what constitutes slow travel. And and I think you've referred to what you did. I think it was, what, uh, 13 countries, 11 months of slow travel. Would you consider that slow travel? Did it feel slow when you were doing it? That's a great question. I think people's threshold is different, of course, right? Um, the whole idea was that, okay, we want to go for an extended period of time and break away from being in the U.S. Let's see, that was the main goal, right? Let's, let's see where we want to perhaps do our next trip and stay there longer. So, yeah, you are right. There were areas where I was, wow, I wish I had stayed here, like, my life. <laughs> Six months. What were some of those areas? Um, I fell in love with Spain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whenever I think about a place where I would like to actually retire and just stay because of the rhythm of life and the mindset and all that really matches what I believe and what I feel, that would be, you know, the Basque country, like you mentioned, in Spain. It's absolutely phenomenal. If I had to go do an extensive traveling experience, like let's say, oh, I want to stay there three months or four months and just explore, I would say I would go back to Argentina. Argentina is spectacular. And so was South Africa. I have to say from all the bad press sometimes, you know, that the the country has had over the years, it was one of the most breathtaking experiences we had. And I cannot wait to go back. And my last one would be Turkey. Turkey was a country that we haven't, it was a so-so country. It was in our list kind of, but we weren't 100% 100% sure we were going to make it there. And we spent almost four weeks there, and that was um, an outstanding experience. That's another place I would love to go and spend more time exploring. What I want to explore a little more, you mentioned, I think, Spain, Argentina, Turkey, South Africa. Let's pick a couple of those countries and and really investigate what is it about those places that way of life, that culture that really resonated with you. So let's think about, you mentioned Spain and how the way of life corresponds to to your view of how the way of life should be. Can you think about specific moments or experiences when you were in Spain where you had this realization, uh, whether it's intensity of emotion or some kind of cognitive, aha, the, this is where I belong. What, were there specific moments or did it slowly accrue over time that you realized this? What was it about that experience so when we hit Spain, I felt a peace, an inner peace when I was in Pamplona and later on exploring the Basque region, where I feel like the people there have this urge to live and experience the moment. People seem healthier that way. I, they felt like, not that they didn't care 
for anything, but they, they just were present. The, re, the, the, the idea of eating to socialize, for instance, you can go to any restaurant or bar and everybody's super happy and, you know, it just feels like people understand that you are here in life, in the world for just a limited amount of time and that you must enjoy what you have in front of you at that moment. So it's very easy to turn around and talk to anybody, make comments or, you know, share a joke or anything, you know, you don't even have to, they don't, they're not going to look at you like you're some weirdo, you know, uh, I think the concept of socializing, not to have a purpose necessarily, but to just kind of do it, you're just there and you're, you know, ordering a pincho and you had your third glass of wine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All of it feels, it felt so natural and so spontaneous and not contrived. I think it's, it's a type of litmus test for me whether I'm going to get along with somebody if we're in a country such as Spain and we're walking around and we see the hours of an establishment and it says something like 9 to 12.30, open, and then closed between 12.30 and 3, and then open again 3 to 8. Uh, one person's reaction might be, good Lord, what are they doing between those three hours? What a complete you know, lack of productivity. What a waste of time. This society is not as productive as it could be. There is that attitude out there, and it's For a sure. very uh, almost GDP-oriented. If you're not doing something productive with the full totality of your time, and productive can mean different things to different people, then there must be something wrong with the society. It's no wonder that their economy isn't a powerhouse that, for instance, the United States is. But that is a certain kind of not just a economic view of the world, it's also a very personal view of how you value your time and what you think your time is about. Some people have a anxiety. I'm not maximizing my time. I am sitting around idly for 30 minutes. What could I be doing to fill those 30 minutes rather than just take those 30 minutes, relax, think, ponder? It's a very different mindset, and I think that the cultures represent that often. Absolutely. I feel like we have been conditioned here. You have to understand that we, in the United States, we are a working society, okay? So it's very hard. Everything we do, the way you go to school, your schedules, everything is perfectly aligned like a very well-oiled machine that must continue to go. And, you know, there's like any choice or any other way of life, there are consequences and costs, okay? It's just that I feel these people made a conscious decision that no matter what happens, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to have a life. It's not to say they are careless or that they are irresponsible or they don't, they don't care about what's happening to them. And, you know, but I feel like there is a mindset. You're right. It is, it's ingrained in their culture. I think it has been done for centuries, right? You feel that in Brazil, that your job does not define who you are. You have a job because, you know, you want to enjoy some of it, but at the same time, if you don't enjoy it, well, it's just a job and I'm just going to do it and live my life and find time for me to break away from that so I can actually enjoy life. I mean, it seems like it's the, uh, that mindset I feel is healthier, I guess, in the long term. Mm -hmm. There is no uh, mutual exclusivity between enjoying idleness and being a productive person in the purest sense of productivity. I mean, uh, so that idle time sometimes is precisely what you need to refresh and be productive in a smarter and a smarter and smaller burst of time. I want to change gears a little bit. And you mentioned something earlier about what is it? LearnLiveTravel.com. Is that the right? That's learn, right. live, travel. Three words. Right. Got to get the right order. LearnLiveTravel.com and all the video content that you have there. And, and I've been following it for for a year or two, waiting for each episode to come out. Thank you. Now, what I've noticed. Uh, 
you have different cameras. You probably have a DSLR. You probably have a GoPro. You probably have sound gear to capture the audio in a more professional way. You edit these pieces. It looks like you have color correction going on on them. How do you balance being in the moment in the places you're in with that meta awareness associated with shooting? How can you enjoy? And I'm not judging you. Well, maybe a little bit. How can you enjoy <laughs> the situation you're in, whether it's in the middle of, you know, the fields in Argentina, enjoying the Basque Country, while also thinking about aperture and focus and composition and color correction and maybe editing in your head? How do you? How can you be in the moment and photograph at the same time? So many aspects to think about. <laughs> so yeah, I did travel with quite a bit of gear, but. Uh, we had planned this out because my wife is like, holy crap, you're taking all your mistresses with you, meaning all the cameras. And But I said, look, but, you know, I have a horrible memory. <laughs> this is a way for me to be able to capture that and relive it at any given moment. Um, but I guarantee you that I was 100% in the moment when I was doing that. It's like the cameras were an extension of me. It sounds cliche, but the bottom line is I've done this for so many years and um, – I really needed to um, have that as a, some sort of a, a way to freeze that in me, that moment, you know. Mm. Um, but remember, I was a, a, an active participant as well. We, when I say slow travel, I mean like we were in places long enough that I could take breaks. Um, uh, when we were doing a road trip in Argentina, for instance, I drove 90% of the time, so I couldn't film. Of course, couldn't operate anything at that moment. But, you know, you have to remember, uh, my daughter was there, and she's a really great actual blogger. Uh, she helped me with the content. And also Heather. Um, both of them were pretty active participants. And, you know, whenever was necessary to have supplemental content that I, you know, I was driving, I would be like, oh, my gosh, I just ran over a tarantula, you know, on the road. Um, we couldn't capture that. I'm kidding. But the... Um, and Heather was was the instructor. Yes, she was uh, uh, the tutor, and she was you know she's been a friend of our family for like twelve years. But anyway, I, I relied on them as well. Um, my wife is a has a fantastic memory, so we, we, she was able to narrate stuff and remember names of places and minute details of things that I was like, what? I don't remember that very well. And then I would be like, oh, yeah, I remember. And I would have to go back to the video and actually visually see it. I'm a very visually oriented person that helps me um, remember different aspects of things. And that was one of the elements that I used um, to be able to trigger those memories later on. I think you're a much better person than I am. Let me give you the example of when I, I'm trying to think about photography in a place I'm in. It's almost like I get tunnel vision where all my other senses are, are dulled a bit and I'm really focusing on composition, exposure, getting the right angle. And what happens is that I think about that, you know, 69 rectangle in front of me rather than the totality <laughs> of, of, you know, the, the sensual information around me. Um, there's a certain editing out. So what I try to do is, if, if, let's say hypothetically, there's a one-week period where I'm in one spot, is dedicate a maximum of one or two days to focusing around photography or capturing it and then dropping it for the rest of that time. Oh, you miss so much spontaneity. There's, there were so many things that happened to us. There were moments where I was just like, I cannot believe I actually got that on camera. You know, um, like when there was a condor, we were visiting a sanctuary in Peru, and a condor actually tried to pick out of my, my backpack out of my back. It was quite hilarious. But, you know, it just so happened. But I, I feel like it just comes with experience. I feel, remember, this is my field of, of, of 
activity, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, video production and, and photography. So all those things, composition, f-stop, uh, shutter speed, any of that always comes to mind in a split second. I know exactly what I have to do in frame. It's probably more intuitive to you than it is to me, thus you can enjoy more of the environment around you with, with some of this automatic technical stuff happening. No, it is. It happens in my head very, very fast, in like a split second all of a sudden. It just, it, it's just happening. I don't, I, don't, I don't think about composition. I don't think about uh, focus or any of that. That, that stuff just comes. Um, I will grab lenses and stuff that I know are intuitively are going to give me what I need to do. And again, the slow travel, quote unquote, slow travel, being in places a little longer um, helped help me sort of figure out a time when I was just there. I mean, the camera was always at me, don't get me wrong, always, 24-7. <laughs> but it didn't mean that I was desperate to record things. It was more about, oh, this looks really interesting. Something would pop in my head or catch my eye and I would be like, oh, this is kind of cool. Um, and and I, will t I will say that toggling between video and photography was really quite hard. But I figured early on how my episodes, the structure of them was going to be. So I didn't have to film five minutes straight. You know, I could just take 15 seconds, 20 seconds, little clips that would in, you know, allow me to have enough content to justify making that part of a video. So even that kind of came automatically to me. I kind of have this structure in my head. So it didn't detract. I mean, it didn't take it away from me having a sensorial experience of being there, mm -hmm. eating a fantastic meal or just talking to locals or, you know, any other thing you might be, you know, seeing ruins for the first time or touching things that you would never have a chance to and understand, oh, this is how it feels like. Yeah, I was never, I don't think, in a situation where I regretted, oh, this damn camera, I wish I wasn't, I wish I hadn't started this thing, so now I have to finish it, you know, whatever. It was always kind of spontaneous. I remember one episode, I don't remember the exact location, maybe you can help me sure. figure it out. You were in Chile, and you were in some house near the beach. And it struck me that this is one episode that in a way was focusing on you and how you absolutely loved the location you were in, and you were relaxing, and, and you became almost a a primary protagonist of the video rather than the the man behind the camera what was that place if if you know what i'm talking about yeah. in chile and you were walking down toward the beach and there's a shot of a fence what was that place tell us a little bit about that experience so the one in chile let me see that was called las cruces and it was a very remote beach where senior citizens go to sort of spend their time there it's super peaceful and it, if you think of slow man this is like exponentially slow motion, like 120 frames per second. Nothing really happens in the town. So it's a place you go to really, really decompress. My wife, who's a person who needs the energy and is fed with the structure and all that, she kind of went a little nuts there. Mm. <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, this is the best. I can wake up anytime and we can, oh, I think we're going to go wine tasting today. This sounds horrible. <laughs> but, um, that kind of living was my mindset, just really gradually, you know, letting things happen as you kind of go through the experience. Um, the only planned things we did when we were there was just we must drive out to wine country and, you know, go to the Casablanca Valley and test all possible wineries that we can find on the way. But other than that, it was just about kicking back and relaxing. I'm going to go back to Amsterdam. And you said when the impending doom, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, came to you that it was the last stop on yes. the trip and you had to come back to the United States. I want to talk a little bit about that reentry into the U.S. and oh into boy. Seattle life. 
How did how did you come back into the United States? Did you have to do a little pre-planning when you were out in other countries and set up your landing back in the United States? What was re-entry like, and, and did you feel a decompression? At the end of that period, I think we were about four weeks out before we actually moved back into our actual house. I, you know, the impending doom was not related to necessarily any of the practical things. Like most people would be like, oh my gosh, we're gonna do it, I don't have a job. Or, oh, where's my house, you know, what am I gonna do? It was more about, wow, I am really not ready psychologically, emotionally to go back to that, you know, the risk of having that same routine again after having this amazing experience. So the, the, the conversation that my wife and I had was somewhat about, okay, let's, let's try really hard to not make that ex this experience have been completely in vain. I would love to have something that is definitely a consequence of what we learned here be applied to our ongoing, to our future routine moving forward. You know, we know the kids have to go back to school and we know that you and I are going to have to find jobs, but perhaps we look at this as slightly different and we don't have to fall into the same traps. And uh, luckily this is exactly what happened. Although I will confess that I started crying the moment I boarded the plane in Amsterdam mm -hmm. and it didn't stop for another 48 hours until I was here in the U.S., uh, it was really quite uh, a rupture for me. I was, honest to God, was not ready psychologically. I think in some place in my head, this delirium of, oh, I could probably continue to do this forever. Because I had, I had learned through the trip also from so many couples and blogs and stuff and stories of people who have just literally maybe started like this. They started, oh, we have a house, but then we were like, oh my gosh, there is no way in hell I'm ever going back to that slavery. So they would sell everything mm -hmm. and find a way. Let's just go to a place where it's cheaper. You know, instead of going to France, maybe we're going to Croatia, you know, and just stay there as long as we possibly can. Um, we have stories of people that have done that and that's still doing and still traveling. They sometimes find ways to become the digital nomads. It's a term that has started a few years ago when people started, you know, the expats started sort of um, trying to share the experience and trying to make uh, monetize a little bit on it. Um, it is it is a common thread, and there's, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, I suppose, that, that do this still. Mm -hmm. And what we'll do is add some of those to the show notes if people want to see fine examples of those folks, we can add it. And it's it's interesting, this is close to the, the final question I'm gonna ask you, maybe it's the penultimate question, depending on how you go. Goodness. Are there moments when you still, when you feel the impact of this trip fading away? You're in the middle of life here in the United States, and you say to yourself, Wait a second. What am I doing? Was this, were these eleven months just fading away from from defining who I am, or or has it become woven to who you are and how you think about choices and how you process your, if you can, emotional responses? Um, to what extent has it faded versus become part of who you are? Excellent question. Wow. Yes. Okay. So I think I think about the trip and the experience every single day, actually. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm here in my bed in, 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 in my house. Uh, oh, I'm in the U.S. You know, it takes a split second for me to relocate myself sometimes in the morning. I, I think it would be impossible for the level of experience that we had for it to actually completely fade away. So a couple of the things we started to do is we really downsized. We got rid of a lot of our physical stuff. Uh, we still have, of course, stuff, but we were very pleased to know when we left that we only had a 10 by 12 um, a storage unit where all of our stuff actually fit in. 
But anyway, it doesn't, I don't think it has diluted. Um, I think in the back of my brain, there's still this um, spark of certainty that I am going to have to do something similar again. And I am hoping, as, we, as my wife, that we, um, we will be able to do that for a, an extended period of time where we might just migrate somewhere and live there for a year or six months or something like that. But I feel like the travel, the travel portion and having the experiences of being somewhere different and experiencing the culture, um, it's very much in us. And I know that for a fact that we will be doing that very soon again. It's impossible for you, I feel, to really get away from experience like that and just fall back 100% to the same routine you are. I feel even your um, the stuff that stresses you out, there are things that you just, all of a sudden, you just let it fall off your back. You're just like, you know what? This is so not worth it. You literally don't care. Great. Inspirational, as I said at the beginning of the program, because my interest in travel is not only to look at the locations and say, yes, I've, I've checked, marked all the places, but also how they influence who I am and how I change and how they challenge me. So thank you so much for, for this. Tell us again where listeners can find your site with all the wonderful video and written content. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Eric. So if you guys want to know more about what we did about us, you can go to learnlivetravel.com. There are webisodes, there are uh, pictures um, from uh, all the locations we've been. Currently, we are just on season one which is South America, and I'm about done with it. I think I have two more episodes on Brazil to be done, and then we move on to South Africa. That's it. I mean, it was a great experience. Thanks so much for letting me share it. Absolutely, and I highly recommend go look at the content on that site, especially the video. It's color-corrected, for God's sake. I mean, how often do you get <laughs> these travel blogs that have color correction of, the, of high quality? So thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you. So what's coming up next week? Rodrigo will be back, but this time we will be focusing on two countries and discussing some of the cultural and emotional impacts they have had on him. Uh, following this show's manifesto, we want to really understand the texture of the places in our lives through a more personal and idiosyncratic approach. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where our podcast, videos, and written content live in harmony. Yes, you heard right. Thismustbetheplace.io, not .com, .io. If I can get the .com, then I'll tell you about that. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Until the next time, this must be the place. This must be the place.